But here we are today. We are in Acts chapter 21, uh, beginning at verse 27. We started looking at this particular section of the book of Acts. We're going to finish it out today and then move on uh, to chapter 22, where Paul finds himself in Roman custody and what happened there. So let's just go ahead and read through Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 27, through Acts chapter 22, through verse 22. And, um, and then we'll come back and take a look at it in closer detail. So here we go. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts, because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. But the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was brought to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great rush, he addressed them, great hush, when he had addressed them in Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by, by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. We said that the Apostle Paul had come to Jerusalem. Uh, he had come on a mission of mercy. He had been collecting funds from all over uh, the Gentile world for the relief of the church in Jerusalem, which was a beleaguered church, a poor church. Uh, this was part of Paul's strategy to weld together these two factions, the Gentile faction of the church and the Jewish faction of the church. But we pointed out that it may have been the case that God the Holy Spirit had been warning Paul all along that he should not go to Jerusalem. Now Paul made it very clear he was perfectly prepared to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. He had made that point very clear. But we said that in many respects that was not the question, was it? The question was not whether Paul was willing to go and suffer and die for the cause of Christ. The real question was whether God wanted Paul to go and suffer and die. And we saw that on numerous occasions, Paul had actually been warned in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now we know how the story ends, and with the advantage of hindsight, it's very clear that Paul was put in a compromising position when he got to Jerusalem. Uh, he ended up being there with James, the leader of the church, and while he was there with James, we quickly discover that he was put in this position where he almost compromised the Christian gospel. It's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. <laughs> so Paul was put almost in this compromising position by James and the leaders in the church. Um, I think it was Todd Brown who raised the question of, well, wasn't James dead by this point? And I think just in passing, I mentioned the fact that there was more than one James. And that is true. Um, it's a little complicated, and that's the reason I didn't go into it. But for those of you who are curious, there are actually five James mentioned in the New Testament. And that's what makes it very complicated. Uh, the name James was a very common name, just like the name Joseph was a very common name. The name Mary was a very common name. Um, in fact, there are a number of Marys that we find in the Gospels. Uh, we encounter Mary Magdalene, for example. We encounter Mary, the mother of Jesus. We encounter Mary, the wife of Clopas. So there were a number of Marys. Uh, some of those Marys figure prominently in the resurrection accounts. Uh, there were a number of Josephs, as I said, 
Even Jesus was a common name, incidentally. Uh, it was a form of the Old Testament, Joshua. And because Joshua was a hero among the Jewish people, many people were named Jesus. That was not a unique name. In fact, you'll recall that there was a man that was brought before Pontius Pilate named Barabbas. His real name was Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas meant Bar-Abbas, the son of Abbas. His real name was Jesus. So when Pontius Pilate brought these two men out, he said, which Jesus do you want me to release to you? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, or do you want me to release Jesus Barabbas? And that's when they cried out, free Barabbas, free Barabbas. So these were common names. James was a common name. A few years ago, there was a tomb discovered in a hillside outside of Jerusalem that bore the names, among many others, but three names stood out prominently, at least to people who were reading them, Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. Not necessarily in that order, but those three names appeared in a list of all these other names. And somebody said, ah, this is the tomb of Jesus, and we can just find the bodies of the late J.C. That's what they were thinking. The interesting thing is that scholars were not the least bit impressed. Those names were so common, it would be like finding John or Mary Smith in the London telephone directory. Not all that surprising. Well, there were actually five James, Jameses in the New Testament. For our concern, you only need to know about three. I'll tell you about the other two, but you really only need to know about three. There was James, who was sometimes referred to as James the Greater, who was James the son of Zebedee. Now, you always find him listed in the New Testament. He's one of the prominent disciples or apostles. James, the son of Zebedee, he's the brother of John. They were referred to as the sons of thunder, James and John. And they're oftentimes put together with James and John, Peter and Andrew. So that, that's James the greater. Why is he called the greater? Probably because he was the elder of the others. He is the James who is the first to be martyred. Then there is James, the son of Alphaeus, who is also listed as one of the apostles. He's called James, the son of Alphaeus, because he's not James, the son of Zebedee. All right? So he's also listed. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he's called James, the son of Alphaeus, and he's one of the apostles. Then there is James, the brother of our Lord. And that's who we're talking about here. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was not one of the original apostles. And incidentally, he was originally, as it seems many members of Jesus' family were, with the exception perhaps, perhaps of Mary and Joseph, he was skeptical of Jesus' ministry until after the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, he becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. But he is very, very Jewish in his outlook. So those are the three that you need to remember. James, the brother of our Lord, is the one that we are dealing with in the book of Acts at this point. Now, there were two other Jameses, just in case you're taking notes. There is James, who is the father of Judas. All right, so uh, you'll find him listed as well. And then there was uh, another James, um, and that is James, who is the... He is related to Clopas and to Mary. He is the son of Clopas and Mary. Uh, but he doesn't figure prominently in the New Testament either. Uh, he's just mentioned because it was Mary 
the wife of Clopas, who goes with Mary Magdalene and the others to the tomb on the first day of the week. So lots of Jameses. The only one you really need to be concerned about for our study today is this is James, uh, the son of, or James, uh, the brother of our Lord. Now, I say there are five, unless you're a Roman Catholic, in which case there are only four um, Jameses. See, it gets very complicated at this point. Um, the Roman Catholics oftentimes assume that James, the brother of our Lord, is the same person as James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, why is that? It has everything to do with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, as Protestants, we believe that when Mary conceived the Lord Jesus Christ, she was a virgin. She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We call that the doctrine of the virginal conception. It is not the doctrine of the virgin birth. All right? Technically speaking, Protestants don't believe in the doctrine of the virgin birth. We believe in the doctrine of the virginal conception. The doctrine of the virgin birth is actually a Roman Catholic doctrine. It teaches that Mary remained a virgin perpetually. In fact, oftentimes in Roman Catholic prayers, they'll refer to Mary as ever virgin. The belief was that she gave birth to Jesus, she conceived as a virgin, but once she gave birth to Jesus, a miracle occurred, the hymen did not break, and she remained a virgin forever, and she never had sexual relations with Joseph. Now what you need to understand is that there is no evidence whatsoever anywhere in the Bible for that. In fact, I would argue that the biblical evidence suggests just the opposite. That while she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and was a virgin, once she gave birth to Christ, it was a natural birth in the same way that every other baby is born. And furthermore, she went on to have another family with Joseph. And there are references in the New Testament to Jesus' brothers and his sisters. And this is James, the first child by Mary and Joseph. But because Roman Catholics subscribe to that doctrine of perpetual virginity, they cannot say that Mary and Joseph had any children. And so they say that this must be the son of Alphaeus. You say, well, what? the Bible says Jesus' brothers and sisters. And they say, well, that's brothers and sisters in sort of a generic expression of the term. So that's why I say, depending upon who's counting, there are five or four different Jameses. So now that that's all clear in your mind, <laughs> let's just press on from here. <laughs> So Paul arrives in Jerusalem. He goes up and he meets with James. This is James, the Lord's brother or half-brother. And while he's there, he's put in this awkward position. They said, look, Paul, we know that you've done great things among the Gentiles. We know that you've accomplished all kinds of things, but we've been busy here too. And you have to understand that things are different here in Jerusalem from the way they are in Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and all those other places that you've been. And there are many people that are arguing that you've come here and that you are teaching things contrary to the law. Now, Paul, we know that you were a Pharisee. We, we know that you're a Jew, and we know that you wouldn't do that sort of thing. But we're just telling you that's what people are saying. So here's what we want you to do to resolve it. We want you to take some men, some poor men who have taken a, a vow, and you need to pay to have their heads shaved. 
And you need to go through the rites of purification with them, the Jewish rites of purification. That way everybody will know that you submit to the law of Moses. And then at the end of the time period of purification, go with them up to the temple and make an offering. And this will put down all of these rumors. Now we said the problem with that was that when they went up to make the offering, the offering was not a monetary offering. It was the offering of an animal. And that offering was being made for what? For the remission of sins. And we said that was the problem. That's why Paul was put in this awkward position, because Paul knew that there was only one sacrifice for sin. This was the gospel that he had proclaimed throughout the Gentile world, that there was one perfect, full, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Have you ever heard those words before? Where do you hear them? They're the prayer, the Eucharistic prayer on Sunday, whenever we celebrate Holy Communion. A full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And in Holy Communion, what are we commemorating? The death of Christ. He is the only sacrifice for sins. And Paul knew that, but now he found himself in this predicament. What was he going to do? There was pressure from James and the others, and he did want to bring reconciliation between these two factions of the church, and so we're told Paul decided to do it. And I think that this was a compromise on the part of the Apostle Paul. But we notice that while Paul was perfectly willing to be compromised, God was not about to be compromised. We must never forget, my friends, that the gospel, as important as it may be to us, is actually more important to God. And so even though Paul was prepared to be compromised, we're told that God would not allow him to be compromised. Take a look at Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 27. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. We said last week that just as the seven days were almost completed, just as Paul was about to go up and make this offering, this blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, we're told that God stopped him in his tracks. God is the author of circumstances, my friends. And you can see the circumstances in God's hand very clearly here. When the seven days were almost completed, Jews from Asia. Now, it's interesting that they were from Asia. What was the capital of Asia? We said last week the capital of Asia was Ephesus. In fact, we're told that they were probably men from Ephesus because Paul was accused of taking Gentiles into the temple courts. Now, what's ironic is that that is the one thing he wasn't doing. He was actually compromising. He was actually setting aside his own convictions for the sake of the Jews, and lo and behold, he was, he was being blamed for having violated the Roman law. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, shouting, away with him. Away with him. Uh, that expression, away with him, does not mean get him out of here. 
That was exactly the same language that was used by the Jewish religious leaders and the people when Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate. They were saying, get rid of him, rid the earth of him, crucify him, basically. Well, what happened at that point? Well, we said what happened at that point is that the Romans intervened. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions. Uh, centurions is plural, which means there must have been at least two of them. And they ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul was being physically abused at this point, and we're told that the cohort was called out. Uh, Jerusalem had always had a contingent of soldiers there. And the largest contingent would be there during the festivals. Now, Paul was there for a festival, recall. That's why he had gone to Jerusalem at this particular point. So when it says a cohort, we're talking about a thousand soldiers. And so the tribune would have been in charge of about a thousand soldiers. He's the military commander for the garrison there, which was located at a place called the Antonia Fortress uh, near the Temple Mount. We're told that centurions were brought out. A centurion commanded a hundred soldiers. Century, centurion, hundred. If there were more than one centurion, that meant there were at least 200 soldiers that were called out to break up this mob. So this is a real problem. Um, Palestine and Jerusalem in particular were not good tours of duty. If you were a Roman soldier and you were sent there, even as an officer or as a governor, that was not necessarily good news. This was the armpit of the Roman Empire as far as the Romans were concerned. The Jews were a very troublesome people. They were always rebelling against authority. They hated the Romans, and over the course of the 100 years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was, on average, a messianic uprising every year. So the Romans came out. They took this very seriously. They immediately seized Paul. They seized Paul, and they took him into protective custody. But we're told... That as Paul was being brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune, who we learn later is Claudius Lysias, said, do you know Greek? Now, probably what is happening at this point is the tribune doesn't understand what's going on. He just knows there's a riot. He knows that Paul is at the center of it. People are beating and attacking this man. He immediately sees Paul, takes him into protective custody, is taking him inside the barracks to find out what this is all about. That's his responsibility. His responsibility is to keep the peace, and he wants to know what this is all about so it doesn't flare up again. But as he's being carried in, and he probably didn't know what was going on, the people were shouting probably in Aramaic. And it may have been that he didn't understand Aramaic, or he just couldn't tell because we're told that some people were shouting one thing, some people were shouting another. So it was absolute pandemonium. But as he's carrying Paul in, and he thinks Paul's just a troublemaker, in fact, he's under the impression that Paul was actually a man who had led a revolt earlier, an Egyptian. But Paul suddenly says, can I speak to you? And when Paul says that, he says it in Greek. And that's why the tribune turns around and he says, do you speak Greek? He wasn't expecting an educated man, you see, at this point. And Paul was extremely well educated. Yes, he spoke Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic, which was a derivation of that, but he also spoke Greek, and he spoke very good Greek. 
And suddenly he got the attention of the Tribune. This is an educated man. This is, this is a cultured man. And Paul says, can I please speak to the people? And the Tribune says, all right. Now you can just imagine Paul is basically surrounded by all of these Roman soldiers. And Paul then stands up to give his address, his defense. And that's really where we pick up today. In chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. The word that is translated here as defense is an interesting word. It is the Greek word apologia. It means an apology. Apologetics is to give a defense. The study of apologetics or the art of apologetics is the art of giving a defense. Paul is not explaining away what he's done. He's giving a defense for what he has done. And that's what I want us to look at this morning or this afternoon, whatever time it is, we're going to look at it. Paul's formal defense, his apology before the Jewish people and before the Roman authorities. It's an apology really in a number of parts. The first thing Paul does is he gives his personal testimony. I have often said that this is one way that you and I can witness. Even if you do not feel that you are an effective evangelist, even if you do not feel that you are a theologian of the first rank, you can still bear witness to Jesus Christ by sharing your story. And nobody can come along and contradict you. They may contradict you on some point of theology. If you do not have a, a strong knowledge of the Bible or you just don't have that ability to remember facts and figures and dates, they might be able to contradict you on that, but they cannot contradict you on what God has done in your own life. And so I always encourage people to, to come up with a way of being able to share your testimony. Uh, some opportunities will allow you to share your testimony over the course of many days or perhaps over the course of an hour, but oftentimes the only chance you have to witness is very brief. I always encourage people to come up with a testimony that you could share at a bus stop. If you were sitting there at a bus stop, and there was somebody sitting there on the bench next to you, and they asked the question, you know, what are you reading? You say, oh, I'm reading the Bible. Oh, why do you believe any of that stuff? You should be able to give them an answer for the hope that is within you. And one way to do that is to simply say, well, let me tell you what God has done in my life. And when you say that, let me tell you what God has done in my life, they can't turn around and say, no, he didn't. <laughs> See, it's a great opportunity for us. And that is exactly what Paul does. First thing Paul does is he gives his testimony. Now, this is important because Paul does this at least three times in the book of Acts. He does it in Acts chapter 9. We find the actual account of his conversion on the road to Damascus. It's recorded here in chapter 22, and Paul is going to give his testimony again when he is in Caesarea Maritima in Acts chapter 26. Paul also mentions these events in the epistles, in Philippians chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. So Paul saw this, what happened to him on the road to Damascus, as significant, as life-changing, as transformative. And everything that he was going through, everything that he had endured, everything that he was willing to suffer for, when he says, don't break my heart, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and die, he was willing to go to Jerusalem and die because of this event that he is going to describe. So he describes his conversion. What was that conversion? Well, we see it here. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, 
but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Everybody knew who Gamaliel was. He was the foremost rabbi of the day. He said, I was zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. But as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Lord, who are you? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And we all know that from that point forward, Paul was forever changed. He had been fighting against Christ, and he's reminding these people of exactly what he had been. Nobody, everybody knew about Paul. Uh, he had been infamous, and he reminds them of his past in Judaism. I think this is Paul's way of saying to the Jews, look, you, you think that I'm against the laws of our fathers? You think that I'm prepared to break the laws of our fathers? I want you to know that if there was anybody that was zealous for the traditions of Judaism, for the traditions of our fathers, I was one of them. And he said the only thing that could have changed that, he said, was this encounter with Jesus Christ. You know, I've often said that one of the most powerful evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead one of the most powerful evidences for the fact that Jesus was physically, bodily raised from the dead is the transformation that took place in the lives of the disciples. You ever thought about that? I mean, let's be honest. When the New Testament portrays the disciples, it does not portray them as courageous individuals, does it? More often than not, they are making mistakes. Why do you think James and John were described as the sons of thunder? It's because they were always shooting off their mouth. They were always quick to give advice. And we all know about Peter. Peter, who only opened his mouth in order to insert his other foot. Peter, who was always doing things that he shouldn't have done. At the very beginning, when Jesus said, well, have you caught anything? And Peter said, no, we've been out all night. We haven't caught a thing. And Jesus said, well, go back out and throw the nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter says, oh, no, come on. Tell me, what, 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 did you, what, what have you been doing as a living a carpenter, isn't it? I spent my whole life as a fisherman. <laughs> and you, a carpenter, you're going to tell me how to fish? I'm not telling you how to make buildings or whatever you make. But you're going to tell me how to fish. All right. All right. We'll do it just because you say so. And you can imagine Peter thinking to himself, let's just go out there and show him how wrong he is. And you know, they caught that huge catch of fish. When he gets back to shore, he falls on his knees before Jesus, and he said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. We're told that on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he saw Moses, Elijah, and Jesus shining in resplendent glory, what did he say? Let's build three booths. And the text says, because he didn't know what he was saying. This is the same Peter who we're told that at the time of the Lord's trial before Pontius Pilate, or at least before the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, Denied Jesus three times, once to a little girl in order to save his own skin. Look, the New Testament does not portray these men as pillars of virtue and courage. They are described as weak and vacillating individuals. 
And even though Jesus had told them over the course of three years that he was going to die and rise again, and even though they had seen all of those miracles, Jesus walking on the water, raising people from the dead, cleansing the lepers, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish, you would have thought that in light of all of that, they would have been waiting on Sunday for him to come back out of the grave, but they weren't. They were hiding behind barred and locked doors. They are not portrayed as courageous individuals. They are portrayed as weak, frightened children. And yet, what happens? After the resurrection, you turn your page in the Bible, and all of a sudden, you find these men standing and bearing witness to the very same Jewish religious leaders that had condemned Jesus to death just a few hours before. Now, what brought about that kind of transformation? These men would go on, every single one of them, with the exception of John, to die a martyr's death. James would be beheaded. Peter would be crucified upside down. And even John, the only one who survived and did not die a martyr, died in exile alone on the Isle of Patmos. What accounts for that kind of change? What transforms cowards into courageous men? I think there's only one thing that accounts for that. And that is they saw Jesus Christ come back from the dead. Well, what transforms a murderer and a man who was going out and systematically dismantling the Christian church into the man who would become the greatest defender of Christianity since the Lord Jesus Christ? I think only one thing accounts for that. An encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And so when Paul is given the opportunity to give his defense, his apology, he simply tells his story. I was proud of my Jewish heritage. He was very proud. He said, I was a Jew born in Tarsus, brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers, zealous for the ways of God. Paul knew that the Jews had a great many advantages, a great many blessings. He recounts them elsewhere. He said, they have the law, they have the prophets. They have all of the, the benefits. And it's through them, he says, that the Savior of the world has been born. He said, oh, I love my people. In fact, that's why he'd gone to Jerusalem, wasn't it? On a mission of mercy for his own people. Reminds me of the story of Benjamin Disraeli. Benjamin Disraeli, in the middle of the 19th century, was the prime minister of Great Britain. He was an Anglican, but he came from Jewish parentage. And on one occasion, when he was in a debate in the House of Commons, somebody in the opposition stood up. The only thing they could say to Disraeli was, you, sir, are a Jew. Now, if you've ever seen pictures of Benjamin Disraeli, he was not a big man. He was a little over five feet tall. He was a rather short man. But he pulled himself up to his best height. And he looked at that man and he said, yes, sir, I am a Jew. And while your ancestors were in a German forest collecting acorns, he said, my people were giving law and religion to the world. And he was right. He was right. And Paul acknowledges the fact that he's a Jew. And he's proud of being a Jew. And he said, but I encountered Jesus Christ on the road. And that has changed everything. Has your encounter with Jesus Christ changed everything? 
Can people see a change in your life as a Christian? Do they recognize that something is different about you? And when they come and they say, why is it that you don't do this? Or why is it that you do do that? Or what is it about the fact that you can have faith in the midst of even the bleakest of circumstances? Are you able to say, well, let me tell you what God did for me? <laughs> because that is exactly what Paul did. And if you're not able to do that, and I don't mean that you're just not able to articulate it, but if you really don't have a story like that, if you really don't have a story that says, well, yes, God has made a difference in my life, then you need to ask yourself, seriously, has he? Have you encountered him? Well, Paul had, and he said he put a call on my life. Now, up to this point, everything's going fine. People are listening. Claudius Lysias, the Roman soldiers are listening. This is an interesting story. Until Paul says that when I encountered Jesus Christ, he gave me a commission. And that commission was to do what? To go to the Gentiles. And the minute that they heard Gentiles, we're told that the riot broke out again. The minute that they heard the word Gentile, the riot broke out again. Look at verse 22. And up to this word they listened to him, but then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Up to this point, the tribune didn't understand. He, he did not understand why Paul was going along. There was a hush over the crowd. Everybody was listening. And the minute that he mentioned the Gentiles, all of a sudden people exploded. He must have thought at this point there's something else to this. Paul's not giving me the whole story here. This, this can't be the thing that is causing this disruption. And so I've got to figure out what it is. It's my responsibility. And so he decides that he's going to take Paul inside the barracks and he's going to discover how or what this is all about. And the way he's going to do that is by torture. He's going to flog Paul until he coos. That's the plan. Why was the problem the Gentiles? Well, we've already seen the people were offended by the Gentiles because in many respects they were offended by grace, weren't they? Billy Graham died a, um, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And one of the great hymns that was always played at a Billy Graham crusade at the end was the hymn what? Just as I am, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's the gospel that Paul had proclaimed, that anybody can come into the presence of God if they plead the blood of Jesus Christ. How good do you have to be in order to come into the presence of God? How good do you have to be? This is a question. Go ahead, answers. How good do you have to be in order to come into the presence of God? All right, well, Bill Warlick gets the gold star today. If you want to know how good you have to be in order to come into the presence of God, you have to be perfect. Perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, you say to yourself, well, none of us is perfect. Paul would say precisely. That's why you have to come 
washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness has to be imputed to you. It's a declared righteousness. You cannot come as you are. You may come as you are, but God is not going to leave you as you are. He's going to transform you. He's going to change you. And that's what Paul had proclaimed to the Gentiles. The Jews didn't believe that. The Jews believed that you came into the presence of God the old-fashioned way. What did John Houseman used to say? We got it the old-fashioned way. We earned it. And that's what the Jews thought. By obedience to the law, not just the, the, the spiritual law, but the moral law of Moses, following the codes, keeping all of those restrictions, all of the kosher laws. If you do that, then you will become righteous in God's sight. And Paul knew that there was nothing we could do. Even our best efforts were nothing but filthy rags. That old hymn, one of my favorites, there is a fountain filled with blood and drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Paul knew there was only one way to be saved, and that was by the blood of Jesus Christ that washes all of our filth, all of our vileness away, and presents us before Christ pure without spot or blemish. That's how you came into the presence of God. And that's the message that he proclaimed to the Gentiles. And the Jews found the message of the cross, as we heard in this past Sunday's gospel lesson, to be a what? A stumbling block. It was a stumbling block. And they were so offended by it that they almost tore Paul limb from limb. Which is where we pick up the narrative. We find the Apostle Paul taken in to Roman custody, into Roman custody. Now, before I move on, any questions about any of that before we end this section and move on to the next? Anything? Okay. Well, then let's move on. So Paul is uh, taken into protective custody by the Roman soldiers. They're taking him in there because they realize that there is a riot and there has to be something to this. Certainly, it can't be about the Gentiles. They don't understand how the Jews operate or how the Jews think. And so they're going to take Paul in, and they're going to have him publicly flogged. From this point forward, from this point forward to the end of the book, Paul is in chains. Now, for 20 years, Paul has been a free man, preaching the gospel, evangelizing the Greco-Roman world, and establishing churches. From this point forward to the end, at least to the end of the book of Acts, Paul will be in prison in one form or another, in one place or another. So this is a real turning point. Paul is no longer going to be a free man. This section is a drama in three parts. We see Paul here in this section before the Romans, that is in Roman custody. We see him before his own people's religious leaders, that is before the Sanhedrin, the highest body of authority within Judaism. And then we see Paul with the Lord in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And I want to look at all three of them because they're all very important. First, we see Paul in the presence of the Romans. As I've already indicated, the Roman tribune had a real problem on his hands. His job was to keep the peace in Jerusalem. It was not an easy job. And sometimes the Romans did it with great violence and great force. But he had to get to the bottom of this. He had to understand what this was all about. 
And so he brought Paul in, and as we've already seen, he was prepared to publicly flog Paul. Now, I want you to understand this flogging was the same flogging that Jesus had endured prior to his crucifixion. This was the dreaded Roman flagellum. This would have been a whip that contained in, in the cords pieces of bone or glass or metal. It was designed to be a cruel punishment, and oftentimes the person who endured it did not survive it. After Jesus had endured it and the tremendous loss of blood, he was not even able to carry his cross the whole way to Calvary. So the only way that this Roman soldier feels that he can put down this uprising is if he gets to the bottom of this, and the only way to do that is to take drastic measures. And so he is prepared to flog Paul. This is not the beating of rods that Paul speaks of in other places. This is something that's going to happen to somebody prior to execution. But just as he is about to do it, Paul asks a question. He said, is it right for you to flog a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? Paul, as you know, was a Roman citizen. He was born a Roman citizen. And so he asks this question, and we read in verse 26, and when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune came down and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We've already seen that Paul has invoked his Roman citizenship in other places. Uh, he had done this in Philippi when he had been there. And they had unjustly incarcerated him, and they were going to perhaps put him to death. And then when Paul was delivered by God, that great earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison, and he came out, and we're told that finally the, 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 the city fathers decided to release Paul and Silas. But Paul said, I'm not going to go quietly. I want a police escort out of town. I'm a Roman citizen and you can't do this sort of thing to me. So we see Paul from time to time invoking his citizenship. Here's a perfect example of that. I'm a Roman citizen. How dare you flog a Roman citizen who has never been tried and found guilty? And we're told that there was great fear. Roman citizens had great privileges. And what's interesting here is the Tribune recognizes that. He recognizes that he had to purchase his citizenship oftentimes for a large sum. His name, as we're going to see, is Claudius Lysias. During the reign of Claudius, when the empire was short on cash, they would allow people who were subjects of the empire, but not citizens of the empire, to purchase citizenship. And Lysias was probably one of those. That's why he took the name Claudius. And that was one of the things that helped him to work his way up through the ranks of the Roman military. Well, Paul was born a citizen, and that citizenship protected him on this occasion. I think what we find here, at least with the Romans, is the state functioning as the state should function. That, that's the main point that I want you to take away from this section. Here we have a great picture of the state, the secular state functioning as the secular state should function. Keep your finger there in Acts and turn to Romans for just a minute. 
to Romans chapter 13. And I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says about the state, the secular state. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you are wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Boy, that's a powerful message to us as we approach April 15th, isn't it? Pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. Now, it is true, Paul acknowledges that there are times when the secular state does not operate like this. There are times when the secular state does not administer justice. Paul makes that point very clear in his epistle to the Ephesians. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces and powers and authorities in high places. So Paul does acknowledge the fact that the secular state can at times be corrupt, but he acknowledges the fact that secular authority is not here by accident. It is here by the providence of God. And the state, according to the Bible, has two functions. Two functions. This is what the state, according to the Bible, is supposed to do. One, it is to establish, maintain, and administer justice. That's what the Bible said the state is supposed to do. It is to establish, maintain, and administer justice. How many times do you see a police car driving around with this motto, to protect and to serve? The Bible would say that's absolutely right. That is the responsibility of the state, to establish, maintain, and administer justice. And the second thing that the state is supposed to do is to provide for the defense of citizens. In this case, subjects, subjects of the Roman Empire. According to the Bible, those are the primary duties of the secular state. Those two things and, listen to this, those two things only. The responsibility of the state is to establish, maintain, and administer justice and to provide for the defense of the citizenry. Their internal defense, police forces, their external defense, military. Now that's problematic because that's not what we imagine the state is supposed to do. We have all different kinds of ideas as to what the state should really be all about. But the Bible is very clear. One of the things the state is not expected to do is to provide us with security. The idea of social security is not a biblical notion. Now, heaven knows, many of us have been paying into it for years, and we're hoping we're going to get something out of it. 
But according to the Bible, that whole notion of security, personal security in that respect, that's not the responsibility of the state. That is the responsibility of the church. And truth be known, if we were doing it, we could probably do a better job of it than the state. Let me just direct your attention back to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. It's been a long time since we were in Acts chapter 2, but I want you to go back there. In Acts chapter 2, we have a picture of the early church. Remember, this is just after Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 tells the story of Pentecost, so we're right after Pentecost. Pentecost was the birthday of the church. So this is right after the birth of the church, and we get a picture of what the early church was like, the earliest church. And we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to notice here that these people cared for one another, didn't they? Nobody, we're told, was in need. Now, why was no one in need? Because the Roman government was taking care of them? Because there was some sort of system of social security? Why was it that the early church, none of its members, had any need? Why? Because they were taking care of each other. And the section ends with these words, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why do you think? In these early days, it's quite clear the early church was not doing what we would call outreach. They weren't capable at that point of doing outreach into the community. What they were doing is what we would call inreach. They were caring for one another. You think, well, they must have been doing outreach. That's why people were coming in and joining them. No, they were doing inreach. They were caring for one another. They were caring for the widowed and for the orphan and for the poor and for the destitute. And if that meant selling their own goods in order to help a brother or sister in Christ, they were doing that. And people on the outside were seeing that that was not taking place in the state. And so they were provoked to jealousy and they said, I don't know what those Christians have, but I want to be a part of it. And that's how the church grew in those early days. I'll tell you what has happened. The church has abdicated its responsibility and turned it over to the state, expecting the state to do things that was never intended to do. And as a consequence, the state oftentimes doesn't do the things it's supposed to do well. And in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. But that's exactly what we see happening, you see. The state is doing exactly what it's supposed to do here in this section of the book of Acts. What are they doing? Protecting the citizenry. That's their job. Maintaining justice. That's what the tribune Claudius Lysias was doing. He knew that he had a responsibility to what? Maintain order and to get to the bottom of it. And he was prepared to do that. 
But when he found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, he didn't what? Proceed. He didn't take action into his own hands. He followed the letter of the law. It's a wonderful picture, really, of the state functioning. It's so ironic. These are the Romans, for heaven's sakes. We always have this picture of the Romans as sort of pagan, polytheistic, cruel, not following the law. But what we have here is a great picture of the state really doing the state's job well. Next week, we can come back. We're going to take a look at Paul before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish religious leaders. And the irony is we're going to get a very different picture. Here was the secular state doing its job well, the religious leaders not doing their job well. And when that's the case, who can you appeal to? Well, in the end, Paul doesn't appeal to Caesar, not yet anyway. He appeals to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the third part that we'll see. We see Paul here before the Romans. We see Paul before the Sanhedrin, and finally we'll see Paul before Jesus. So let us pray, and let us give thanks for the secular state. It exists by God's grace and by His mercy. It's one of the reasons why we are told to pray for our leaders, and it's why every Sunday in church, as part of the prayers of the people, we pray for the President of the United States, you should be praying for the justices of the Supreme Court, not only because of our circumstances, but because it is their responsibility to interpret the laws. You should be praying for local authorities as well. We have a great privilege of living in this free country, and many of the benefits that we receive and many of the burdens that we have put on the state are burdens that we expect because we have been living off the residue of a Christian heritage. Somebody has said that we are living in a cut flower society. It's true. Cut flowers are beautiful, aren't they? And somebody gave us a beautiful bouquet of tulips. And I walked into our front parlor, the drawing room the other night, and I looked at them, and it looked like Medusa's hair. I mean, it had just, they were beautiful at one point. But the problem with cut flowers is what? They're dead, aren't they? And when you cut them off from their source, sooner or later, the petals begin to fall. And that's what's happened in American society. We've cut ourselves off from our Christian heritage. And for a while, everything looks fine and good, but eventually the petals begin to fall. What will the church do in times like that? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the witness of the Apostle Paul. Remind us, Lord, that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ if by no other means than simply sharing our story. If we are Christians, we do have a story to tell of how you have made a difference in our lives, of how you walk with us on a daily basis, of how you uphold us in the bleakest of circumstances. Give us the courage, Lord, to share our story with those around us and not to be afraid, to be thankful, to be thankful that Jesus Christ stood by us. And Father, we thank you for this free country in which we are able to worship, in which we are able to witness. We thank you that this country was founded upon Christian principles of morality. And we pray, Father, that you would turn our hearts and our minds once again to the one who is the author of true liberty, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you.